How are we doing? Me too. So we finished Luke last week. Um, I, miss, I miss that. I was in Maui. Yep. The, the cross I must bear. I brought the sun back though, because we got back on Saturday and it was sunny, kind of. I was like, hey, I like this. It's warm today, isn't it? I, you can blame that on me too. So we're going to start a new book. Uh, we went back and forth, the crew, and we decided Exodus, why not? So we're going to teach Exodus. What I'm going to try to do today is I'm going to get in a plane and fly over the book of Exodus and give the big picture, and then we'll take time to look at all the trees in the forest. So that's kind of my goal. Uh, you could say Exodus is this. Freed, God leads, and God feeds. That's the whole book. We'll get a little bit more intense than that. Uh, there are keys in Exodus that really, biblical theology-wise, are some of the most important keys in the Bible. Redemption. God's greatest work is redeeming us. And I think Exodus is the story of redemption that echoes out through the rest of the Bible. Um, covenants. God makes a covenant. What does a covenant mean? Uh, who is the one that the covenant is based on? God's presence. So if you look at Genesis, Genesis has a unique thing to it. It's God is the planner. Hey, I've got a plan. Um, you see it lived out in the life of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Uh, and, and then Joseph is like this interlude story that also, look at God's got a plan, even if things are really bad, they can work out good. So God's the planner. Uh, but God isn't like with his people. It's God appears, and then disappears, appears, then disappears, right? But what you have in Exodus is God is going to say, my presence now is going to be with you. It's going to be personally experienced. You've heard about me. You've heard about Abraham, your great, 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 great grandfather, and Jacob, right? You've heard these stories. You've heard about the covenants of promises, but now it's been 400 years. So what's happening now? And so God begins to come and, and he demonstrates his presence really tangibly in this book. Uh, it's like in Ephesians 3.19, it says this. It's the goal that we're supposed to have, that we might know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge. How do you know something that surpasses knowledge? Right? Isn't that almost like, sounds a bit like an oxymoron? Here's what I think happens. So uh, my best illustration of it. My mom, a single mom, raised four of us. Three of us were boys. And there came a point in the boys' life where she felt like she could not explain things the way they needed to be explained. So the birds and the bees talk. So she outsourced this but we didn't know it. We just knew one day my older brother and I got picked up by the senior pastor of the church. You cannot ask me to do this for your kids. Just know that. 
So he's like, hey, I want to take you guys to Dairy Queen. We're like, well, all right, on. we'll go to Dairy Queen. So we go to Dairy Queen. What do you want to buy? Well, I want, if you're at Dairy Queen, what do you get? A blizzard, right? I'll take a blizzard. So we're sitting there and we're drinking our blizzards. And he's like, okay, boys, there's coming a time when you will no longer look at girls and say, ooh, cooties. You'll look at girls and say, ooh, baby. And it just got worse from there. I just was like, right? And I'm like, come on, man. I know this stuff. I'm 20 years old. You have to tell me that. (laughs) I was actually 10. (laughs) So I remember thinking in my head as I'm drinking my smoothie, turning red, like never, yuck. Why are you saying this (laughs) in a public place? This is awkward, all right? Because I had all the facts, but I didn't have the feelings. And it's when the facts become real, when you feel it, you don't have to think about it. It's not knowledge anymore. It actually surpasses your brain and becomes a part of who you are. And that's what God's gonna demonstrate in Exodus. That's the prayer of Paul for us in Ephesians, that it's no longer just knowing about Jesus, It's knowing Jesus. And what's so fascinating to me is like yesterday, I had a number of meetings. Two of the guys, both of them said this, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for this grandparent. Like grandparents, you have a huge job. So these are men now in their 50s and 60s. I would not be here as a believer in Jesus if it was not for my, one was a grandfather and one was a grandma. And then number two, they said this, Um, they had both gone through some really deep valleys, hard times. And they said, that was when I stopped knowing about Jesus and I started knowing Jesus. And so that's the book of Exodus. Like there's gonna be some hard stuff in Exodus, but as God uses those things to reveal himself. All right, so let's jump in. And I don't know how far I'm gonna get. I'll be honest. I have a hard stop at 7.30 for parents, but we'll go as far as we can. Yeah, pray, pray for speed. So this book begins with, I just call it the promise. Verse one, chapter one. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly, and they multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. The very first word in Exodus. It's just a Hebrew letter. It's the Hebrew letter Vav. And it's a conjunction. It says literally, and these are the names of the sons. Why would there be an and at the beginning of Exodus? Because it's just picking up the story of Genesis. That's all it is. Hey, and, right? And here are the names. You knew the planner. You saw this plan working out in Genesis. Now you get to know the planner, right? So here's what you're seeing. This first little section is doing something. 
God made a promise to Abraham, right? Go outside, look up at the stars. Why did God tell him to do that? Because your descendants will outnumber what you can see in the stars, okay? Your name is being changed from Abram to Abraham, which means father of many. He went from a few, and it just says here, end of this verse, they multiplied greatly, grew exceedingly. It's God saying, yeah, the promise has come to pass. I kept my word to your great, 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 great grandfather, Abraham. And I'm gonna keep my word to you guys as well. But what we're gonna see is this. When they get the promise of God, it's the promise that gets them into trouble. Because they get so big, they get so mighty, there's so many of them, it freaks Pharaoh out and Pharaoh starts to persecute him. It's the very getting of the promise of God that leads to the persecution. They become slaves, they're beaten, their babies are killed, right? They say uh, about Pharaoh that, hey, uh, it even gets worse and worse. Like Pharaoh takes away all the stuff to bake bricks as God continues to work out his promise. You, you don't have any of the straw and the mud anymore, you gotta do it on your own. Like every time God's promise comes true for the people, it actually makes it more difficult for them. So sometimes we think, hey man, I can't wait till God's promises come true. And there is a truth to that. But know this, there's another side to this battle. There are pharaohs, spiritual pharaohs. And as God's promises come true to you, what can happen is all of a sudden, there's a tax on you that you didn't experience before. And most people that have lived any amount of time know, yeah, that's true, that's true. Happened to Paul, right? Paul, Acts chapter nine. You're gonna do these great things. You're gonna be for kings, all this stuff. And man, it's gonna be tough for you. Life is gonna be hard for you. It's gonna stink. So Isaiah puts it like this. God's ways are not our ways. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so high are God's ways around, above ours, right? We cannot understand sometimes like, God, what is happening right now? But you have to trust this. The end of the story is always brilliant, So God in Exodus is trying to get his people, trust me, the end of the story will be brilliant. No one's making a movie about the middle 400 years, right? I have not seen that movie. When they're just waiting, doing nothing. But there's tons of movies about the book of Exodus because it's an incredible story. So if you have pharaohs or taskmasters in your life right now, and you're saying, God, why is this? Get excited. God's gonna write it really good story for you. On top of that, God was making Egypt uncomfortable because he wanted his people back in the promised land. Sometimes God makes us uncomfortable. Maybe it's in our job. Maybe it's in our home. Maybe it's in a relationship that's not supposed to be. He makes us uncomfortable so that we'll be ready to move into his promised land and say, okay, God, all right. It's maybe why Colossians 3, 15 says, you let the peace of God rule umpire in your heart telling you hey this is i'm unrest why am i unrested right now soul why are you messed up in me well it could be god getting you out of egypt so you see the promise and then number two you see the players verse eight there arose a new king over egypt who did not know joseph and he said to his people behold the people of israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, 
Let us deal shrewdly with them lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for the Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they oppressed, the more they multiplied. And the more they spread abroad. What a great verse that is. You look at church history, right there. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. And they made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of them who was named Shipra and the other Puah. When you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and you see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. Here's the big player. He doesn't know Joseph. Doesn't realize Joseph saved his nation. Doesn't know any of that. And he comes on the scene and he changes the rules and laws of Egypt and begins to put the children of Israel under the thumb. What's this Pharaoh's name? Nobody knows. I've read pages and pages and pages and pages on conjecture about who the Pharaoh is. He remains unnamed. Who is named in this text? Great names for baby girls. So, Shipra and Pua. I'm waiting to dedicate a Pua. Midwives, right? Most likely women that could not have kids of their own, and that's why they took up the job of midwifing. That's not one of the best jobs in the world. I shouldn't say that. That's not a high level thing. You're not Pharaoh, right? You're getting a message right here by Pharaoh remaining. Oh yeah, Pharaoh, big deal. But these two midwives, ooh, yes. It's God's economy. So did anyone hear about an aircraft that wrecked on Tuesday? Do you hear about that one? Yeah. In Sangamon County in Springfield, Illinois. Killed everybody aboard. Anybody hear about that one? Did anyone hear about a crash on Sunday in a helicopter. Anyone hear about that one? Why did everyone hear about one and very few about the other? Right? That's the way the world works. Both of them, massive tragedies, no doubt. No one hears about one. Why? It's local news. That's the way the world works. But that's not the way God works. His economy is upside down. The pharaohs, he's like, I don't, I'm not even going to name them. But these two midwives, ah, for all eternity, their names will be remained will be remembered. Why? Because they took care of my kids. You want your name remembered? Take care of God's kids, right? Take care of the unborn. Take care of God's kids. That's how important it is. They will be remembered. So cool. So then chapter two, the next big player, you've got player number one, ruthless, mean, destructive, just genocidal maniac, right? Unnamed, but then chapter two, Moses is born. 
Moses is born. Parents don't want him killed. So he gets a little bit older. They put him in a little boat. They put him on the Nile River and then they ship him down down the Nile River. And then verse five of chapter two says this. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. While her young women walked beside the river, she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. Now, if you're reading this for the first time, you're thinking, oh no, Pharaoh's daughter. Pharaoh's the one killing the genocidal maniac. Oh no, this is terrible. This is the worst possible end. But no, you guys know the story. She takes Moses in, raises him. Here's another really important thing. It's hidden in here, but it's this massive piece of theology that is woven through the entire Bible. So if you remember Genesis, Genesis ends with this really cool story. Jacob dies. The 10 brothers that sold Joseph into slavery think, oh no, dad's dead. Joseph is gonna finally kill us. There's no reason why he won't. So they come to Joseph, the 10 brothers that sold him into slavery were super brutal to him. They come to Joseph and they're like, hey, hey, dad said before he died not to kill us. That's a really shortened version of it. And what is Joseph's answer? It's Genesis 50, verse 20. What you meant for evil, raw in the Hebrew, God has turned for good, tov in the Hebrew, to the saving of many lives. I call that judo theology. That God used the, the momentum of evil, actually just the, the selling of him into slavery, all that, the momentum of evil, the prison sentence, all that stuff, the false rape charges, all that evil, God used the momentum of evil and turned it for something good. It's judo theology. So if you don't know what judo is, judo is a martial arts that, let's say, Um, Josh Cunningham gets tired of hearing me all the time talk and just one day he snaps and he just jumps over that sound booth and just comes running towards me and he's going to take me out. And I know judo. I know the name at least. So he's (laughs) he's running towards me. What I would do is I just use his momentum and throw him into this wooden drum set back here. That's judo. I don't have to actually do anything. I just turn him and move his momentum. That's what you see in scripture all the time. So here you see it again. The very implement of destruction, the Nile River, where the babies were being thrown. Moses, if you think about it, is thrown into that same river, but he comes out of it as the deliverer. That the very thing that was causing the death of the babies, out of that same thing is gonna come the deliverer called Moses. And his name literally means drawn out. He drew, he was, he, the deliverer was drawn out of the evil Nile River. It's phenomenal. And we'll see that more and more through this, but it's just, just God is constantly doing that. Judo theology, right? So here's what happens. He grows up. He kind of awakens to, hey, I'm Jewish. I should be protecting my people. Sees this taskmaster beating a slave, goes over there, kills the taskmaster, digs a hole, buries him, thinks, okay, everything's good. Next day he comes over. Here's how the story goes, verse 14. So he sees two people, two Hebrews struggling. Why do you strike your companion? And so the companion answered, who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? 
Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely this thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian and sat down by a well. So Moses now thinks he's ready, thinks God's going to do it now, kills a dude, uh, buries him, thinks it's all good, goes back to his Hebrew brothers. Hey, man, we're good, right? They're like, who made you king? This is going to be the challenge to Moses for his whole life. Over and over, Moses' authority will be challenged, right? Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Hey, who made you the chief? Right? Over and over, the children of Israel, we're going to elect a new leader. We're going to have a vote. And we're going back to Egypt. Moses, you're out. His own brother, Aaron, and sister, Miriam, challenge his authority. Over and over, Moses will be challenged. Who made you a judge and a ruler? It is a theme for God's leaders. Jeremiah's challenged. Ezekiel's challenged. How many times does Paul, does he defend himself? Hey, man, I'm an apostle too, man. Right? It's a constant theme. If you're going to serve God, know this, your authority will be challenged over and over and over again. So here's what, here's what Moses is going to do. He's going to like, okay, okay. I need to figure out how, how to live, right? So he leaves, heads down into whatever, the desert, somehow meets this dude named Jethro, falls in love with his daughter, marries the daughter, and he takes care of sheep. He takes care of his father-in-law's sheep. And that's how chapter two ends. So think about a second. The, the juxtaposition of these two guys. Pharaoh is in firm control of everything. Ruthless. His word is law. He's worshiped as a God, right? And you got Moses. He's taking care of his father-in-law's sheep. Would you read the book written by him at this point? How to take care of your father-in-law's sheep. How to be a tool of your father-in-law. Join me, right? Like you're supposed to get this like insanity to this thing. Are you kidding me? They couldn't be further apart on the spectrum, right? Like the midwives and Pharaoh. They couldn't be further apart. But there's this hinge chapter and it's chapter three. It's unbelievable. So Moses keeping his sheep, verse one, of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. This is a huge, important place. And the angel of Yahweh appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. And he looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. Like, I love the internal dialogue there. Hey, hmm, I will turn aside. And I will see why, right? You're like, hmm, well, that's obvious. Captain obvious. When Yahweh saw that he turned aside to see, God called him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. And he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you stand is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. Then Yahweh said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. And I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Does God come down and deliver them? Yeah. 
Does Moses deliver him? Yeah, right? Partnership. And then again, behold, the cry, verse nine, of the people of Israel has come to me and I have seen the oppression with the Egyptians have oppressed them. Here's the hinge. The people cry out. The people cry out. You could say prayer. The hinge that changes everything is the people begin to cry out in the midst of their misery and God hears them. And God could have just immediately just wiped them all out, right? You're gone, snapped his fingers. Then Exodus is only three chapters. Quick book, I could do it tonight. But he doesn't. Instead, he grabs Moses, this forgotten dude. No one in Egypt remembers Moses at this point. It's been 40 years. There's no one in Egypt saying, man, Moses was the dude, right? Nobody. He is an unknown nobody for 40 years doing nothing. And then some people's prayers ignite this bush that takes down an empire. Do you know how powerful prayer is? It's the people's prayer that ignite a bush that takes down the most powerful empire on earth. And then we get revealed for the first time the covenant name of God. Like God is not his name. Do you know that? That's a title like president. We get revealed here the covenant name. So check this out, verse 13. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say to this people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Oh, it's so funny. Moses is like, that's the worst name in the world. <laughs> like what in the world, right? When he goes before Moses or for Pharaoh for the first time, it's chapter five, verse two. He tells him like, hey, um, I am sent me. And Moses goes, who's I am? I'm not doing that. What are you kidding? Right? The name is so like hilarious. Like I am? Huh? So at 37, Moses is just gunning to do it. Man, I am ready. I'm here. Haste always leads to waste. 40 years later, he's like, yeah, I don't know about this. If I go back, like, who do I say sent me? He wanted to hear, I'm the God of thunder, right? I'm the God of the sea. I'm the God of the sun. I'm the God of the mountains. I'm the God of the lions. No, my name's I am. Moses is like, oh, I'm doomed, man. Come on, give me something here, God. When I was reading this this morning, it just reminded me of this story of my son, Elijah. He was about three years old. And my family had come home and they saw a bear, right? So that's a lot of excitement. And my girls were a lot younger. So everybody comes in the house and they're like, there's a bear outside, there's a bear outside. And Elijah, he's three, he's like, dad, get your shotgun. I said, son, I don't own a shotgun. He's like, What? Well, what gun do we have? I said, buddy, we got these guns. This is what he said. Oh, we're doomed. <laughs> That's what Moses said. Oh, I'm doomed, man. You got to give me more ammo than this. <laughs> just the most random thoughts sometimes when I read the Bible. So he's just like, oh, I'm doomed. So Moses now is going to try to get out of this assignment. 
chapter four, verse one. Then Moses answered, okay, this is setting up the difference between Pharaoh and Moses, right? The players. Pharaoh is just, right? He's it. Dominant, ruthless, just like a machine. Now we get Moses, squirmy. Then Moses, chapter four, verse one, answered, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice for they will say, I am did not appear to you. <laughs> and Yahweh said to him, what is that in your hand? He said, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent and Moses ran from it. How awesome is that? Here's our hero, right? Ah, run away, run away, right? I mean, just, you have to realize the story that's being painted to you in this text, right? Pharaoh, just the solid dude. Moses, you're like, oh, great. He's our hero? Man, I don't know about this guy. This is what's being set up. Pay real good attention to this. Verse 10. But Moses said to Yahweh, oh, my Lord, I'm not eloquent, either in the past or since you've spoken to your servant. Listen, in the last five minutes, my speech hasn't changed at all. Like, that's kind of funny. What, what did he expect? Like, all of a sudden, he'd be a different kind of talker? It's really awesome. But I am slow of speech and of tongue. And Yahweh said to him, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seen or blind? Is it not I, Yahweh? Now, therefore, go, I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. Moses, bro, you don't matter. I'm with you. You're not what's important here. I'm the one that's important. Don't worry about it. Don't worry. And then verse 13. But he said, oh my Lord, please send someone else. Dude, I'm out. I'm even out of excuses right now. I'm just telling you, God, yeah, I'm not doing that. Send someone else. Then the anger of Yahweh was kindled against Moses. Guy got mad. Really? Moses, really? <sighs> this is making a point. That the people that God used are not the ones you would think. We just see them on the other side. We see Moses on the other side of all this but he's just like you and me. That's why Paul would say, and when I learned the ways of God, I started to glory in my weaknesses because when I was weak, he was strong. I tapped into something that was so incredible and so amazing that I started saying, oh, if I was only weaker there, God could be stronger for me, right? I love that. And so God relents. He's like, okay, fine. Is they're not Aaron, your brother, the Levite. I know that he can speak well. <laughs> your younger brother could do this. Is that a little subtle? <laughs> I think it's a little, your, your kid brother could do this. Any older brothers? That should get us. What? Fired up. Your younger brother could do it. I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he'll be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth and I'll be with your mouth and with his mouth and we'll teach you both what to do. So here's what's gonna happen. 
God's going to talk to Moses. Moses is going to talk to Aaron. And then Aaron's going to talk to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh's going to say, you guys are buffoons, man. This is so weird. Like you whisper a little bit and then he talks. This is awkward, right? It's really getting weird here. God uses the most unlikely of people because he gets the glory then. Read 1 Corinthians 1. Not many noble, not many wise, right? If God chose the dream team, remember the dream team in 1992 won the Olympics in basketball? I'm dating myself. Was anyone surprised, right? They were blowing people out by 60 points. But when the Z team wins, you say, whoa, what happened? That must be a really good coach. That's what's happening here. Watch who I will use. When God calls, you become unstoppable. Second Peter 1.10, make your calling and election sure and you will never fail. Maybe you feel like Moses and you attempted ministry and you attempted great things for God and then you failed like Moses did when he was 37. And now you're gun shy. The story of Moses is to you. It's to you. Step up again. Step up again. Who knows? Well, what am I supposed to do? I like the story of Caleb when he's old. He found a mountain with a giant on it. Find a mountain of a problem, a giant of an issue and say, God, if you want to use me, use me with this mountain of a problem. Use me with this crazy thing. And watch to see what God does because he loves to use the most unlikely of people like a Moses. It's brilliant. So it's prayer. It's the cries of the people that ignite this bush that start this story. Pray especially for the lost, pray. Now we get the plagues, chapter five, all the way to chapter 12. This is God confronting an empire called Egypt. And he does it through 10 plagues, water into blood, frogs, gnats, flies, pestilence on the cattle, boils, hail, locusts, darkness, and then the firstborn. As you read through these chapters, the big question that causes a lot of concern is this. Who hardens Pharaoh's heart? Who does that? We'll, we'll try to work through that. But here's what you see. In chapter four, God says this to Moses. I am going to harden Pharaoh's heart. So there's a certain group of people that take that and say, God did it. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. But God does not say when he is going to harden Pharaoh's heart. Because what you see as you continue to read the story is this. I think God gives 10 opportunities of grace for him to repent. Look, look. And Pharaoh has the ability to change his mind, doesn't he? Because he does it over and over. I'll let the people go now. I'm not going to do it, right? You already know Pharaoh has this ability to change his mind. He has the ability to make free decisions on this. He goes back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. His own wise men tell him this in chapter eight. Hey, this is the finger of God. And it says, Pharaoh hardened his heart. So who hardened whose? Was it God or Pharaoh? It was Pharaoh. And then God hardened his heart. It was God came after Pharaoh 10 times saying, hey, 
Repent. Change your mind. You've already showed you could do it. We know you can. Let the people go. I'm giving you 10 opportunities of grace. I'm sending you two of my mouthpieces, my stallions, Moses and Aaron. Listen to them. And Pharaoh continually hardens his heart until finally God says, okay, have it your way. I'm gonna harden your heart. If you want that, I will give it to you. And each one of the plagues is actually an attack on an Egyptian god. The gods that ruled the Nile, the god that ruled whatever it was. And then the last one, when the firstborn is killed, the son of a Pharaoh was a god. They said the son of, that Pharaoh was Ra, the son, and that his son was the moon god, Khonsu. So when does Passover happen? Full moon. Your God is in full power right now. When your God is in full power, I'm gonna show there's only one God. Man, that sounds so harsh. I know. It does sound so harsh. But what was Pharaoh doing to God's babies in chapter one? The same thing. And God gave him 10 opportunities. Stop, stop, stop. Pharaoh did it without provocation. God did it in justice. Really? You're gonna keep killing my babies? Stop it. Knock it off. Let my people go. No, 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 no. Okay. He waited 400 years to do it. And then finally God says, time's up. Time's up. You're not gonna hurt my kids anymore. There's a time when God says, no more. My justice must be executed now. And here's the thing. God goes through the same thing with his only son. So God is not a God who allows himself a place of privilege. But God is a God who says, I will go through the same thing as well. So, interesting section. From there, chapter 14 through chapter 18, you see God's protection. And God is trying to say something to his kids. Hey, I got you, right? Passover, the blood on the walls protects them. But then they come to the Red Sea, right? Chapter 14, listen to this. Sounds like God's a really bad general. Verse one, then Yahweh said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pirahiroth between Migdal and the sea in front of Baal Zephon. And you shall encamp facing it by the sea. They're set up. They're trapped now. Sea on one side, mountain on one side, mountain on the other side. Box Canyon. And then Pharaoh comes after him. And like, this is a stupid place to be. But what's God doing? I got you. I will protect you. I'll open the sea and you'll walk right through. I will protect you. Okay? So then it keeps going. They get really hungry. What does God do? Feeds them manna. They get really thirsty. What does God do? Water from a rock, right? I got you. There's this battle in chapter 17. And Joshua is in charge. Is Joshua a soldier? No, he's a slave. He was a mud, brick, baking slave a day before. Right? He is ill-equipped to fight this group of people that are warriors. So he goes down there. He would be slaughtered. But something happens. And I'll read it to you. Verse 11. 
Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put him under him, and he sat on it. While Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side, so his hands were steady until the going down of the sun, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. When hands were raised, the battle was won. When hands were raised, the battle was won. Why do we praise? Why do we raise our hands? God, win the battle for me. God, I give myself to you, right? And listen to this. Then Yahweh said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua. This is the very first thing ever written in the Bible, that little story. When your hands are raised, the battle is won. When you're looking to him, the battle will be won. Does Joshua remember this? No, read the book of Joshua. He forgets just like you and me. And we need to be reminded, right, I come before you. I raise my hands to you. God, you are my answer. I don't know what to do, but my eyes are upon you. We come back all the time to this. Then chapters 19 through 24, one of my favorite sections. And it's simply, you're my people now. God covenants with his people. And probably my, maybe my favorite chapter in this book is chapter 19. It's so awesome. I can't wait for it, but you're going to have to. It's unbelievable. God invites his people into his presence and they refuse. And instead of getting into God's presence and having that kind of relationship, chapter 20 is you get the law instead, right? And if you read the New Testament, what the law is, the law was never it. It's always been the Abrahamic covenant, if you amen me, you're counted as righteous. If you believe me, if you know that text, Genesis 15, verse six, that's always been God's covenant. That's why we're children of Abraham, not children of Moses. So the law was an intervening thing because the people refused to say, we wanna walk just like our father Abraham did. Now they're afraid, but that's for another story. Chapters 25 through 40, here's my presence. So God now wants to say, I want to live with you. Here's how you worship me. Here's how you interact with me, right? There's a right way to worship God and there's a wrong way to worship God. So in Leviticus and in those books, it adds on to this, but it's the beginning of it. And there's this thing that's repeated over and over and over. The tabernacle, 55 times. The tent of meeting, 33 times. Like that is the big idea in these chapters. So what God is saying is this, I'm gonna make a tent. The outside, plain. No one would look at that tent and think, man, that dude's blinging. Just badger skins. But the inside is brilliantly beautiful because that's the life of a believer. We have this treasure in earthen vessels, right? It's the same idea in there. I'm gonna dwell in you. Right? So he's saying, come, come into my presence. But right in the middle of all the details about the tent that God wants to inhabit in the presence of his people, guess what happens? Golden calf. Right in the middle of it. They knew it was wrong. Chapter 20, right? Make no graven image. They already had the law. So God says this in chapters 32 through 34, just a fascinating section. God says this to Moses. Okay, because they're worshiping the golden calf, I'm gonna wipe them all out 
and I'm going to use you, Moses, to make a new Israel. If you're Moses, what would you have done? They've already complained about food. They've already complained about the Red Sea. They've already murmured against him. What would you do? Man, it's about time, God. You finally figured it out. Yeah, let's do this. I'm tired of them too, man. Goodness, I'm tired of this church. I want a new church. So there's this dialogue that happens between Moses and God. I'm gonna destroy the people. I'm done with them. And what does Moses do? He intercedes. No, 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 don't do that. Remember your promises. Remember the covenant to Abraham. Remember that. Remember what people would say that you led these people out here to slaughter them, right? And so God, it says, relented. All right, I'm not gonna do that after all. What in the world is that? Does God change his mind? So you can read entire books, thick, weighty books have been written on that dialogue. What is happening right there? Huh? I thought God knew everything. How could he change his mind? What's the deal here? Can we change God's mind? Would that be a good idea? Here's what that story is doing. It's putting in the mind of God's people, you need a mediator. You require a mediator or else destruction's coming. But you need a mediator that's better than Moses because Moses is gonna lose his temper and make some bad calls. You need a mediator who's better than Moses. You need a perfect mediator. Now, who might that be? Yes, it's setting a category in a Bible reader's mind that we require a mediator and that mediator has to be perfect. That's what it's doing. So it is this thing that's casting way forward. We're looking for Jesus, right? So right after that, chapter 34, get back to building this tabernacle. And then it's dedicated right here. I think I'm gonna make it. It's a miracle. So chapter 40, check this out. One of the coolest texts in the Bible. They've made the tent. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory It's the Hebrew word kavod. The kavod of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeyings, wherever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of Yahweh was on the tabernacle by day and fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeyings. Exodus is this picture. And it's a picture of God wooing Israel to himself. Like a woman, right? Like winning a bride. If you're trying to pursue a woman to win her, what do you do? What do men do to pursue women to win them? Feats of strength, right? Oh, I'll jump off that bridge. No problem. Watch me, sweetie. Right? That's what we do. Feats of strength. So what does God do? Watch. Watch. I'll protect you. I'll take care of you. I've got a plan for you. 
I'm making a covenant with you, chapters 19 through 24. That is, if you would, that's the wedding right there. We are covenanting to each other for eternity. And so God says, now that we've covenanted together, I'm going to build a tent so that I can live with you guys. And then chapter 32, they turn to an idol instead. It'd be like, it'd be like this. You get married, you go on your honeymoon, and on your honeymoon, your wife commits adultery on you. That'd be what, that's the picture that's being put right here. But what you see is this. The end of Exodus is God dwells with his people. An adulterous, disobedient people. How does he do that? Through a mediator, right, Moses. Through a place called the tabernacle, or you could say the church today. Through a sacrifice, through Passover. We would say through Jesus today. That's how. Right? Hosea chapter two is Exodus squished into one little chapter. That's what it is. God pursuing after an unfaithful bride, which is you and me. That's what God does over and over and over. I'll leave the 99 and I'll come after you. The wandering one. This is the image you're supposed to be getting of God. In spite of all this sin, the grumbling, the complaining, all that, the adultery, God says, I'll still come and I'll still put my tent in the midst of you through a mediator, through a place, and through a sacrifice. And this tabernacle, we'll get into it, it's a ton of work. Church is a ton of work, isn't it? Easier to stay home and podcast or live stream. You gotta get here, you gotta get your kids clean, you gotta keep them clean. If you eat dinner here, you gotta re-clean them up. Why do we do that? Verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the kavod of Yahweh filled the tabernacle because of God's presence. As great as live streaming is and as great as podcasting is, I tell people all the time, you miss the thunder and lightning. It happens when we're in the tabernacle. It happens when we're gathered with God's people. There's something here. I have listened to messages that I've gone to and I've been like, that just didn't sound the same. What happened? What? It, it wasn't as good when I re-listened to it. it was, why, why was it better? The kavod of God. It's why Paul prays this. It's my prayer for us every time we gather, 1 Corinthians 14, 25, that whoever comes in here says, of a truth, God is in this place. Because that's what we need. We need God's presence. We need God's kavod. We need his guidance. That's what we need. And that's the book of Exodus. So Jesus today, may we leave this place carrying a bit of your kavod. Like Moses who went up on the mountain and his face reflected your glory, your kavod. It's the psalmist in Psalm 8 that says, we have that kavod. It's been given to us. May it radiate out of us today. May we go from here full of you, knowing you, empowered by you. Where we're weak, may you be strong. Where our mouths stutter and don't seem to have the right words, may you be with our mouths 
speaking words of grace and truth, leading people to your tabernacle. So may you go with us today, we pray. And we ask this in your name, amen. Amen, Amen. God bless you guys.